I'm the CEO at Alley County USC Medical Center. I think many times traditional employers look for traditional types of skill sets, right? And one of the things that we face in the hospital is, you know, how do we customize the services that we deliver to the needs of the population that we serve? Those needs often are not things that employers sort of think about. Our population is 60% Spanish-speaking. You know, the drive to make sure that our employees are bilingual, bicultural is absolutely critical, especially in healthcare. Having lived experiences very similar to our patients, you know, allows them employees to relate and to deliver services at a higher level, and so that's, that's critical. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. Hi, I'm Christina Barsi, co-host and producer of this podcast, and I had the privilege of speaking with CEO of LA County USC Medical Center, Jorge Orozco, before his presentation at PCC's first ever Future of Work conference in November 2019. And what he shared with me was the mission of the medical center, world-class care for a world-class community. He then brought to my attention that it is absolutely crucial for their employees to have shared life experiences with their clients, which poses the question of how to prepare students for this requirement from an educational standpoint. Well, the answer begins with working together. My name is Berlinda Brown, and I am a board member here at Pasadena City College, and I represent the Northwest District of our community. This is a piece of the link that we can use to connect our students to be able to get jobs in the future. Now that we're connecting the industries with the education, I think it's fabulous. I noticed when I looked to all the speakers today, I noticed that one of the CEOs is from LA County USC Medical Center, where I came from. And this is really exciting to me, and I'm hoping that this will not just be one time. We hope to engage these industries so that we could get something for our students. Our students deserve to get good jobs and education, so the alignment is perfect. We are excited to bring to the podium our morning speaker, Mr. Jorge Orozco. Jorge is the Chief Executive Officer for LA County USC Medical Center, 
one of the largest, most complex hospitals in the United States, and a major employer here in the region. We are excited to have him here today, share more about LA County USC Medical Center and his thoughts on future of work at, for his institution and for the region. Please help me welcome Mr. Jorge Orozco. I really want to thank everyone for the opportunity to be here to speak and address a group that really is in position to influence the pipeline of workforce for many industries. And I really don't pretend to be a workforce expert. I'm really here honored for this opportunity to share my own perspective in healthcare. And as CEO of one of the largest, most complex, and important hospitals in this region. So, LA County USC Medical Center has been serving our community since 1887. But today, we currently have 10,000 employees and an annual budget of $1.6 billion. We're a level one trauma center, serving about 35% of trauma runs all over LA County. We have a level three neonatal ICU, one of seven in the county, we have one of the largest burn units one of three in the county. We do over 30,000 inpatient discharges, 160,000 emergency room visits, and 500,000 outpatient visits. I know all of this means nothing to any of you, (laughs) but it's all to say that it's a big place. And if you think we are the county hospital of old, the provider of last resort, the place no one comes to unless you have no insurance and nowhere else to go, think again. The landscape for public hospitals in this country has really changed drastically, especially since Obamacare. Pre-Obamacare, we had about 40% uninsured patients in our hospital. And then post-Obamacare, 2% uninsured in our hospital. And the growth really has been the expansion of the Medicaid program, the Medi-Cal program here in California. So this really just shows that for us to survive and for us to thrive as a medical center, even in the public sector, people have to choose us. So, yes, I think about hiring the right people every day to make sure that we remain a provider of choice in our community. For me, this job goes deeper than just being a job. It's very personal for me because I grew up in Boyle Heights where LA County USC Medical Center is. Yay for Boyle Heights. We got some Boyle Heights people here. My immediate family depended on this hospital for care. My friends, my neighbors, and just like you, I will not accept anything but the best of care this community. And so what I want to accomplish in my time at the medical center, which really drives the type of people that I'm looking for, is to deliver world-class care that is responsive to a world-class community. And responsive to a world-class community means that we engage the community and ask, what are your needs? What do you need to remain healthy in your community? And the response that I've heard was not really what I expected. The responses have been, we need affordable housing. We need food. We need better education. We're depressed. We are poor. So world-class care 
means that our hospital will need to transform from a traditional model of healthcare that delivers care that is hospital-centric, that is reactive to injuries or illnesses, that says, come to us, we'll heal you when you're ill. It needs to transform to a model that recognizes that the health of a person in a community is largely driven not by their illnesses, but by social factors that are not traditionally addressed by medical centers. That if you are poor, depressed, and hungry, no matter how great a medicine we prescribe, you will not take that medicine. You will not be healthy. So we need to do two things to address this. First, we need to create meaningful partnerships with our community and with organizations that can help us with housing, with food insecurities, with mental health, with substance use. And second, we need a workforce that deeply understands and relates to the challenges of our community. So we need to attract employees not only with superior technical skills required to deliver clinical care, but we need to train the best doctors and health professionals that reflect the population that we serve and have a deep commitment and respect for this community. We need employees who speak Spanish because 60% of the population that we serve does not speak English. We need individuals with knowledge and skills to address the social and cultural determinants of health. This means that they too have lived experiences that reflect the community that we serve. So I want to illustrate this with some real examples in, in my world. Before I started at LA County USC Medical Center, I was CEO at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center for 10 years. And Rancho is a hospital that's dedicated to neurologic rehabilitation. These are patients with life-changing injuries or illnesses, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, strokes. So imagine a 22-year-old college student who just a month ago got in a car accident and is now paralyzed from the waist down and will never walk again. And I, as a physical therapist, walked into his room to train him how to get in and out of his wheelchair, up and down curbs, in and out of a car. And he tells me, you don't know what I'm going through. I am never going to walk again. Get out. So I might have had the technical knowledge as a physical therapist, but I did not have the lived experience to be effective. And we recognized at Rancho that our clinical staff largely did not reflect the population that we were serving in terms of life experiences, in terms of relating to the challenges of living with a disability. So what did we do? We trained and hired peer mentors, also known as promotoras. These are 50 former patients who have demonstrated that they're living successfully with their disability. And we embedded them in clinical services across the hospital. Now, these peer experts can have a conversation with the patient. I know what you're going through. Let me show you how I drive. Let me show you how I went back to school after the same injury and how I got married and now have two kids. One of the areas of skilled need that we have at the medical center is with nursing attendants. In partnership with... Los Angeles County Workforce Development, Aging, and Community Services, also known as WEDACs. 
and local vocational schools, we created a pipeline to produce nursing attendants who are from our community, are bilingual, and are trained to meet the needs of our facility. We collaborated with the college to customize curricula. We participated along with the college and interviewed and selected individuals who possess the desired skill. We targeted residents, local residents, who are receiving public assistance. It's important to point out that in addition to offering the opportunity for residents who are economically disadvantaged, these individuals bring real lived experiences that allow us to deliver a higher level of connectedness and empathy to the patients that we serve. And finally, we guaranteed full-time county employment upon completion of the program. In the last one and a half years, our medical center has hired 114 nursing attendants from this program. Now, employees in healthcare also need new skills beyond their technical training. The highest level performing healthcare organizations hire people not only to do their job, but also to improve how their job is being done. So not only doing their job, but also improving how their job is being done. So a registration clerk's job is not only to register patients, but also how to improve the process of registering patients. And this is done through the application of performance improvement methodologies or improvement science. These tools like Lean Six Sigma started in manufacturing and specifically with Toyota and basically involve line staff analyzing processes, identifying and eliminating waste from those processes, and implementing change to improve those processes. This skill set is very desirable to me in any job. And it's a skill set that doesn't really exist. People graduating from programs do not arrive at a medical center with this skill set. And medical centers are very complex places that require this continuous process improvement and quality improvement in all areas. So ideally, our workforce will be trained and proficient in improving the processes that they do. And this is something that could be readily integrated into community college, vocational school training. The workforce does not come with these skills. We are investing in developing these skills of our employees. This academy is open to any employee. It's a six-month program that meets four hours, two times per month, and requires the students to conduct an improvement project in their work area. To date, we've trained 265 staff at the medical center. Now, this is great success, 265 staff, but we have 10,000 employees. So we're, we're not there yet. Now, currently, we employ... 1,000 resident physicians who are training in their specialty. And these are physicians who interact most with our patients. We've been talking about a workforce that is reflective of the population that we serve. So the population that we serve is 66% Hispanic Latino, 18% Asian American, 8% African American. And you compare that to our resident population you can see a a huge difference in terms of lived experience, relatedness to to the population that we serve. This needs to change, but the pipeline of graduating underrepresented medical students is very small. And so the net 
that we need to cast as a medical center needs to be much wider than the local Southern California graduating medical population. And in order to do that, and we've started discussions with USC about how, how best to do that, we have to address housing. How are you going to attract someone to move from the Midwest to Southern California if you're not going to address sort of housing issues? But we're committed to making this change happen. So the reality is the type of people that I need to provide world-class care are difficult to find. So innovative partnerships between hospitals and educational institutions are helpful in creating pipelines of individuals with the skill set that I and other employers are looking for. So in conclusion, I hope my insights have informed your thinking about the type of skills that I'm looking for to meet our community needs, and I invite you to reach out to establish these kinds of partnerships and help us to provide world-class care. We have time for questions? Sure. First off, thank you so much for being here. My name is James Aragon. I'm actually a commissioner for the city of Pasadena, and I also happen to work on this campus as a counselor and faculty member. But in my role today as commissioner, I'm strictly going to hold our college accountable and say that I've been here for this faculty member I know has been here for 25 years. The campus has made some strides in regards to diversifying our faculty and our administration. Minimal, minimal strides. And I'm holding this campus accountable because they are my constituents. We have board members here. We have administrators here. There needs to be programs at this college that are in place that are mentoring our own brown students, our own Asian students, our own gay students to be taking their place. And I've waited years for this to happen. So as someone who comes from an institution that in its existence is not meant for us, it's just not meant for us. So how do you exist on a campus or wherever you're at in your organization to not give up, for one thing, and then to hold the people accountable? And we have our first gay female president on this campus, and that deserves a big, big clap. (laughs) So it's incumbent upon her to make sure these things happen, but it's incumbent upon this entire campus community to make it happen. So how do you exist within that institutionalized stuff that goes on? Not giving up. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's a challenge swimming upstream all the time. And I think partly for me, it's a personal mission because I am from that community and these are sort of my people that, that keep me going, right? You know, you need a critical mass of individuals, of leaders in an organization to sort of tip the balances of this. And it, and it can't be just one or two voices within an organization. So, you know, thank you for your comments. I, you know, don't give up, keep going. Question. Oftentimes, people suffer mentally, so therefore yes. they can't go any further. Yeah. So now NAMI is a nonprofit organization, and they not only help the person that has the mental challenges, they help the families who are dealing with that. Yes. So, I mean, there are great organizations. I've dealt with them before, and they're just, uh, yeah. I mean, for us to reach out for them, and they'll come for free, and they'll give classes, and they also will certify individuals, your staff, or it's free. You know, give them certificates. They'll tell them about certain medicine because sometimes you have to bounce that person back in order for them to go forward. But what you're saying is great. And for the gentleman here who's keep trying and keep going in that direction, if you keep going and dealing with the community, with the people who are different like you, sir, it's going to happen. And once we keep telling people 
in a certain way, please help, please help, it's there, okay? But thanks to everybody from here, and I'm just honored to, to be here. Thank, thank you, you so much Thank for you for listening. your comment. Yeah. Yeah, me- mental health is, you know, this comorbidity is, is present in our community, and it's something that we have to do a better job of addressing at the same time you're addressing medical issues. The issue of homelessness in LA is, is overwhelming and many times it's often the, not the lack of housing, it's the lack of all these supported services that address mental health and substance abuse and social support at the same time. We're actually building a, a 94 bed recuperative care center and a 64 bed crisis residential center and these are transitional housing beds that get patients from hospital to transitional housing to permanent housing. And that's a big hole in our system in that they're in the hospital, they have mental health issues, they still have physical issues, and then we send them out back out to the streets and then they end up back in our emergency room. So it, it takes integration of all of these services to be effective. Any other questions? Have they considered perhaps reopening or redesigning the the program they once had in the 70s where physicians' assistants were created by transitioning our military corpsmen and medical assistants through there? Because I think that that's really a place that we're not looking to in terms of looking at the diversity that you'd like to include sure. because that's a very, very diverse population and yet they have a hard time going ahead and competing with other nursing students and in other programs. So I think that that would be, I mean, I think it was USC that actually started that, uh, or at least the county that started that physician assistance for our Vietnam veterans coming back Mm. as medics and corpsmen, and that created our physician assistant. And I know that that's really grown beyond what that started as, but that's certainly an innovative way to really increase that diversity in medical care. That's a great suggestion. I, I'm not aware of that program. I can tell you that the county civil service application process is a nightmare. Sorry, any county folks here. And it is very difficult to navigate and to get on these hiring lists where you're actually reachable to be hired. The county has committed to recruiting our veterans and actually has additional points assigned if if you're a veteran that allow you to be higher on a band so that you could be reached. But specific training programs, I'm I'm not aware of, but I think that's a great idea. I am a retired x-ray tech from the county. Oh, yeah. Which, well, that was very good. (laughs) And uh, I... What I'm trying to ask is, my opportunity when I went to the county was one of most of our students now that are struggling that they cannot get a job or training and definitely did not have finances to do so. So the program that I had the opportunity to go into radiology, I received a stipend while I was being trained. Not only did I receive a stipend, I knew a lot of nurses that also received a stipend to be able to make it to their program. Do we currently have that? And if not, why shouldn't we have something where 
our students since we're trying to get them trained and benefit the hospital, have something like that where they can get a career and then pay back later to service. Is that available? Yeah. I think the stipends that the county was giving actual employees to go back to school to, to learn different careers were eliminated in the early 90s. Now, I am all with you. I mean, you know, I think having a stipend and allowing students to have some financial support to actually pursue these careers is, is critical. We are doing a lot of construction on our campus. We have a 50% local hire target for all of the firms that are hired for this construction. And we started a training program in, in sort of construction skills so that we can create a pipeline of local residents to come into these jobs. We had an opening session. Who's interested in the community? We had probably about 80 people show up. And then of those 80, about 24 kind of said that they could meet the time frames of, of, of the training. Of those 24, only four actually showed up for the training. And largely because... They all have some sort of employment. They need income. And the lack of stipends really is a problem for us to be able to support these, these pipelines. So I, I will call the County Board of Supervisors and ask them to reinstate that. I don't know if they'll listen. Hi. I um, am a Vietnam era veteran. And once... <laughs> Thank you but I wasn't voluntary. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) once I came out of the service, I worked in personnel and did a lot of hiring, okay? And one of the things that I knew, uh, even before getting out, is most veterans, especially if they go in when they're young, they have no idea how to explain what their skill sets are, okay? They know the, the military jargon, but they don't know how to translate it into civilian language. And by simply being able to do that with veterans, I'd been been able to get them a lot of jobs that they were a really good fit for. And a lot of times that's the problem because they come out with no idea. And particularly when you look at special operations people, They come out, when you talk about corpsmen or medics, I worked with them. I was in special forces. They have skill sets are well beyond what we normally think of as a medic because they have to perform all kinds of treatments out in the field, under pressure, under fire, including minor surgeries. And so they have a lot of skill. And even the engineers, combat engineers, have a tremendous amount of construction experience, but again, they don't know how to explain it. Is it possible to put together a group that can bridge that gap? And as far as training goes, is it possible to put together part-time training programs so they can continue their regular work if there's no stipend, but can get the training? It may take a little bit longer, but you'll find that they're a very valuable asset. They have a lot of leadership skills also, and they're accustomed to changing processes on the fly because that's necessary. 
quite often you have people who perform functions that are vital who get knocked out of you know the function sequence and they have to figure out how do we make this work without those vital people and that's that's part of their everyday life that's part of their training constantly great point i you know i i do think there there is a sort of cultural barrier sort of workforce and sort of transitions from from the military that the county does have a department of veterans affairs and, and i'm just trying to think of how how best to sort of create a pipeline where you can involve the medical centers the department of veterans affairs and, and sort of training programs and sort of create these pipelines that can eliminate those kinds of barriers to entry hi my name is jamal ashraf i'm from computer science department and coming in from the background of computer science and a STEM major, first of all, I think that the direction is that way, that computer science is going to take off a lot more than what it is right now. A lot of things are going to change in the next few years. But the things that we are facing is to bring the diverse group of people to the program, and when they come to the program, to keep them over here. And you talk about that you were in the community, and I had my own share of things, but when you go out there and you want to bring somebody to a STEM and they have a problem with the math, that they have to take two years of math before they get into the STEM. Or they have to work because, you know, they, they cannot just come in and spend next four, five, six years in the school because they have to do some other things in their life. Do we have to change the way that we are? Actually, I, I, have, to, I have to say this. I've been here for seven years and I have seen a big change in the college. And I, I have seen that the direction for diversity has changed and we are going in the right direction, maybe not as fast as we want. But there are other elements of these things that we have to go out there and reach out the community. And then when we do that, as you said, they might have some things that they cannot come into summer camp because they have to work or they have to do some other things. So how do we, how do we address these things? Because I know that we need a lot more of diverse students in my department. Yeah, I wish I had answers. I, you know, I think I think it's it's a multi-pronged approach. You know, you need these students to be socially connected within a campus and, and supported in, in those kinds of directions. You, know, you need to create pipelines in and also pipelines out into employment that really are valued by the communities that you're trying to attract. But there are probably many more experts in this room that can that can really help with that. Thank you. Thanks for your comments. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from you too. Leave us your thoughts and review and remember to rate us. Thanks for listening.